and welcome to the Art Business Podcast. This is episode four, and my guest today is another very special guest. Uh, she, her name is Jacqueline Towers Perkins. Uh, she's an alumni of my program at Southampton Institute of Art in London in the MA Art Business, and she is now Vice President and Director of the Postwar and Contemporary Art Department at Bonhams Auction House in in New York, and uh, I she's been there. Uh, since as she she started in New York as a specialist um, in 2017, and then I think in 2019, Jacqueline will correct me if I'm wrong. She 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 was made director and vice president. Before that, she had quite an interesting postgraduate career. Uh, I think if I'm right in saying, starting at High Road Auctions in London, and then moving on to Paddle Eight's offices in London. We might talk a little bit about that, and then I I believe moved to New York in 2016 to join Artnet before moving to Bonhams in 2017. So you're very welcome today, uh, Jacqueline. Oh, thanks, Joe. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so delighted to be here. Excellent. And you might hear the occasional uh, New York siren going past Jacqueline's uh, apartment, but uh, we, we shall see. Um, I so should I, say that that's typical New York. Of not, course it is. No, not disparaging to my neighbourhood specifically. Exactly. <laughs> Just the, the no, it's everywhere you go, City. isn't it? Everywhere you go in New York, is it, exactly. it, you'd, you'd miss it. You'd miss it if it wasn't there. <laughs> um, so, so may, maybe this is a silly question, or maybe you're going to surprise us. But what is your favourite city, Jacqueline? I don't think I'm going to surprise you too much, David. I think you know I'm a born and raised Londoner, so I have oh. to say London. I have. Oh, I'm to, glad. You know, yeah, one hundred percent. And even though I moved here. A little over five years ago um, to New York. London is still home, you know, it, and it's it's where my my friends and family are. And I just absolutely adore the history and the culture and everything that London has to offer. But I would say that for now, I think New York is, is phenomenal. I, I get so excited by being here. I find the art market here really exciting. I find specifically the contemporary art market as well here, you know, really um, galvanizing and inspiring. Um, so I've, I've got to say, you know, for terms of where I'm living now, uh, nothing's really beating New York for me at the moment. <laughs> and even, even during the pandemic, you know, I, I live by Central Park. So I absolutely you know, love being in the park a lot. I, I walk to my offices um, in, you know, kind of Midtown, Upper East Side. And so I still find it a really exciting place. And I, I live really close to all the museums here. So I get to walk past the Met and the Guggenheim, um, you know, quite frequently, which gives me a lot of, you know, inspiration. And, uh, you know, so I, I really enjoy it here. But L London forever and always. <laughs> Sounds idyllic. And I remember when I'm in New York and I'm, I, I love to walk everywhere in London as well. Uh, but I, I remember the big difference is that when you're crossing those many, many uh, crossroads, that the cars are polite in New York. And I think that's because they can have their licenses taken away if they don't give <laughs> pedestrians priority. Yeah, they're probably a bit more worried about getting sued here. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, and then moving moving from the city, do you do you go out to the countryside or the beaches? Do you have a favourite place outside the city that you like oh, to go to? Yeah, I do. And you know, I, I think that because work is so tied up in the cities for me, I do really enjoy getting out of the city pretty frequently, whether it's, you know, going for a hike upstate or um, I really enjoy you just going for like a day hike, you know, quick train or a quick car ride up um, upstate and do a day hike, um, which is just fantastic. I, I was able to get away for a few days this summer to Colorado 
and to do some hiking. And that was phenomenal. That was, you know, that was really fantastic. I feel like Colorado is, you know, it doesn't boast too much about everything it has, but I feel like some of the sort of B minus C things for Colorado are sort of A plus for everyone else in the world. It's spectacular waterfalls, you know, beautiful mountains, wildlife. It has, it has it all. So that was really, you know, a superb place that I'm really looking forward to visiting again. Really terrific. I think you've posted views on your Instagram posts. I, I definitely would have done that. Yeah, absolutely. I had to share it with the that's world. Another, that's a nice yeah. thing about Instagram is you're looking at your professional work and, and anyone listening, do, do look at Jacqueline's uh, uh, Instagram uh, uh, posts and uh, because there's a lot about the job she does now at Bonhams in, in New York which we're going to come to later but you'll also see some wonderful shots of some of these hikes and Colorado <laughs> views and so on so coming maybe maybe coming back into the city but not necessarily what's your favorite building so I think that you know so my favorite building I would say my favorite place to visit I'm going back to London actually is Leighton House around South Ken, which is which was the um, former home of Lord Leighton, the 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 artist. And they have for those who haven't visited, you've you've got to go. It's open to the public. Um, it's got maybe some unusual hours, but it's just a couple of pounds to get in. And it is, it, you know, his preserved home and studio. And he traveled to the Middle East. Um, he had um, Orientalism, you know, had a quite a running theme in his work as well as pre-Raphaelism. And it's just exceptional. It's like an oasis in the heart of London. It has these, you know, beautiful stuffed peacocks. It has these incredible Middle East and turquoise tiles. It has a, quite a number of examples of his work. And it's just breathtaking. And I've visited many times when I've thought, you know, I have to clear my head or I just want, you know, a quiet space to be. And it, it truly is like a sort of, of a gem. I also think that... Um, uh, Wallace, the Wallace collection in London is quite like that as well. You know, when you go behind Oxford Circus and suddenly you're transported back in time, it has the same feeling to that. Um, I think here in New York, I'm often quite inspired and I'm, I'm moving more modern now. It, it's the Guggenheim Museum. You know, I mentioned that I walk past it quite frequently. And when it when I'm walking up and I, I see it, I see the architecture peeking out on the street. It is otherworldly you know and I I, I I know it's been there for you know many many decades now it's part of the architecture it's part of the landscape but I, it still blows my mind how this building is so unusual so pioneering you know and I think that's what great architecture does it really makes you question it and um you know, I, I just think it's absolutely fantastic. And I love to go see shows in there. Um, so, you know, two really, really different ones there, but they really, <laughs> particularly the Guggenheim, I think of a lot. And I often, I often think back to, to Leighton House as well. Yeah. And Le Leighton House, it's, as you say, it's like being in one of his paintings, like an Orientalist, oh, yes. in inverted commas, of course, painting. That's yeah. what it feels like. So, so any, any, anyone who's in London should, should take the hint it's not so well known it's Leighton House yeah. and uh you know go, go and see that and most people will know the Wallace collection if you don't then you should uh that is actually free to enter and there of course you're surrounded very much by the the Hartford family's sort of French taste in French art uh, which they then brought eventually brought over to London so so two wonderful spaces in London and then the Guggenheim in New York I I, I entirely agree with you and I I remember it's not just a great place to look at 
modernist and contemporary art. I remember when I went, they had a, a Brazilian Baroque altarpiece exhibition that wound wow. its way up. All of these wooden altarpieces. Um, I don't know what the, how they did the logistics, but they were all lining that kind of spiral staircase. That was about oh, 10 that's... years ago, probably. That's incredible. That's so great. Well, I missed that one, but uh, <laughs> they have so many good things there, you know, just really groundbreaking shows. Is, and ap- apropos, apropos the paintings, do you have a favourite work of art? Silly question. <laughs> no, I, I, that's not a silly question. Um, I do. I have my favourite painting, um, which is Ong's Madame Motissier. It hangs in the National gallery in london there's a lot of london uh, things here because <laughs> i guess they're real you know lifelong memories but madame motissier was my favorite painting from when i was i, I want to say about five years old she you know I, I used to go visit galleries religiously with my mother when i was little and we'd go to every single museum and gallery in the city um, and apparently I was a bit of a screaming child. So this was the great way to sort of <laughs> to sure shut me up and also, um, you know, get some culture. But Madame Motissier, this beautiful portrait of her, um, you know, she's, it's a, a 19th century French portrait and she is, you know, reclining, I think on a chair, the, the detail of her, her clothing, this fine stitch work, the colors, the beads, the jewels, um, are just, I could, I looked at it for hours and I became sort of so familiar with her that, you know, she was all, almost sort of like, you know, quite a familiar figure to me, almost like a personal figure. When I was younger, I had, a, you know, a poster of it in my room as well. And so whenever I'm in the area, I always sort of pay a visit to her as like an old friend. So I, I really, I, I, that is such a seminal portrait for me, which is, Unusual given that I'm in contemporary art and I don't see many pieces like that normally. And it's certainly not sort of the route I went into. Um, but that, you know, I look at that painting like an old friend, which is which is really lovely. And, <laughs> and, and was it is it is it just purely the painting, or did it did it um, encourage you to go and find out more about the sitter? It in, no, actually, um, it encouraged me to look at paintings the way I look at paintings. I think the amount of detail um, that the artist included in that work it 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 kind of I think in sort of a childhood way it did teach me, you know, how to look at the the painting, what the artist's doing, every inch of it. I really really poured over, um, and I also you know later on definitely connected it with sort of, um, you know, sort of the idea of historical portraiture, what the artist is conveying, um, who has he been commissioned by and why, what's the power at play here? You know, we're not just seeing a portrait of a nice lady, you know, what, what's motivated both the artist and the sitter to create this this work of art? Why is it now sitting in this museum? So I think I, I come back to it for those reasons as well, you know, uh, and, and and think about it in sort of the the, the way of how it, it sits in the, the art market of that time. Um, you know, I guess ideas of power and, and patronage and, and prestige mixed with portraiture there. Um, so, so yeah, maybe it was sort of the, the first spark to think of, of look more at paintings in that sort of depth and look at the art more in that depth rather just sort of admiring it. How interesting. So, so really you're kind of looking at it from a very formal 
uh, viewpoint, which probably helps you with your modernist and your post-war and contemporary art mm. as well. Yeah, I would admit I was not looking at like that at age five, David, but, you know, it's, <laughs> it's something, you know, it's such an iconic work that I, it's one that I continue to come, you know, think of and continue to see. Um, it's a portrait that's used in, I would say, like a lot of marketing for the museum or, you know, you see it in in, um, in articles or things yeah, like you- that. And she's such a well-known figure. It's actually that I feel like it's the lesser well-known or the less iconic of the two portraits that he yes. did of her. Um, but it's certainly, certainly my favourite. And, this- and she's got a sort of a Mona Lisa face as well. Yes. That you kind of can't quite read her. Um, yeah. Just one last little question before we move on to what, what you're doing at the moment. Uh, your favourite music? Uh, and you might have a contemporary piece and maybe something older. It's up to you. Yeah. Favourite music. It. I've, I listen to a lot of music when I'm working. Mm. I feel like I can get quite easily distracted. I'm sure there's better ways to counter this, but I do like to, when I want to sort of, you know, tunnel down into work, I, I tend to put on music and, and try to block out things and focus. And it might surprise some people to learn that again, quite London focused, but I do listen to a lot of sort of like UK rap and oh, great. Sort of, um, I would say, and that really sort of, you know, focuses me and it really sort of sort of builds me up and gives me a lot of energy to, you know, get through the next couple of hours. Um, so I, I feel like, like that sort of, and I also listen to that when I'm running, I guess as well, quite energizing. Um, I, I guess for older pieces, um, my my parents love um, music from the 1950s, like pop from the 1950s, I guess, like, you know, Buddy Holly and, and people like that. And I grew up listening to that. So when that comes on the radio or, you know, um, when, you know, that's a bit more acceptable to put on for a dinner party than, than the UK rap I'd mentioned, <laughs> You know, so I always really love listening to to things like that as well. You know, like real classics. Or do you remember our art business lecturer at Sotheby's Institute, Jeremy Epstein? His favourite musician ever was Buddy Holly. <laughs> I don't think I knew that. Yeah, I mean, no, he I remember every now and then he's advisor. Yeah. Oh gosh, I should get back in touch with him. Yeah. You know, I, him. I felt like I knew him well, but you know, we didn't never had that conversation on Buddy Holly. That uh-huh. is a. Uh, that is missed opportunity there. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So how did you get interested in art, Jacqueline? Well, you know, I think it, it really stemmed from I mentioned that my mum would take me mm. to sort of every gallery and museum in London. And so I have a somewhat, I feel like, you know, it might be out of date, but a somewhat encyclopedic knowledge of that. And that that really started it, that, you know, the exposure to museums and galleries. And I think that's so important for people, um, you know, to be to be going to museums and having access to art from a young age. I think, you know, we often hear the the very correct complaint that the art world um, feels very elitist to a lot of people. It feels um, very intimidating. And I think that a way of, of tackling that is, um, you know, giving people access art from a very young age when it just feels second nature and it's something that you enjoy and that's pleasurable. And, you know, um, it, it was something that it's certainly extended into every holiday all, everywhere I've travelled, you know, it would be to to visit um, areas of art and culture, or you know, when I was a tourist, making sure that I visited the you know the the city's museums, or um, you know, the great artwork that might be in a cathedral or a church in a, in a city. So it it was just always 
you know, a thread throughout my life. Um, mm-hmm. And which I was, you know, really lucky that my mother was, you know, so encouraging of that. And it, and I, I also, um, and I actually do tie this into sort of what I do now, whenever we would visit a museum or a gallery, we'd buy a couple of postcards, you know, from the gift shop, a couple of postcards of my favorite pieces. And I, uh, kept them in a scrap but a scrapbook so I'd have a page for Vincent van Gogh and I'd have a page for Rubens and I'd have a you know and I think that that definitely played a part into what I do now you know that mm-hmm. as working at an auction house you have to have quite a sort of a, a a wide breadth of knowledge you have to be able to spot things um you know quite quickly um whereas I feel like at a gallery you need to know the depth but the auction house you have to have a you know a pretty good um general knowledge about a lot of things and I, I feel like those scrapbooks sort of you know categorizing artists in my head and being able to identify them um was was you know a very good practice for later on um and I, I really I, I treasure those little scrapbooks oh, you, you know, still so. have them yeah I do actually yeah you should keep I, you should keep them yeah I mean it's you know it's like a kind of it's a little <laughs> a badly done coffee table book um, mm. that I you know are great to go back to yeah <laughs> oh, that's that's fun and then then I think uh, I don't know whether you did history of art at school or but I know I know you I know you went to the University of Leeds where you studied English and history of art but uh, did, can you think of any of the teachers that you had that maybe inspired you into looking at art in a more formal academic manner definitely so yeah you're totally right David I did um fine art at in senior school at oh. school you know so I was I was creating and you know I didn't I thought then that if you um if you like creating art then I guess you become an artist. I, you know, this was when I was a teenager and I just had no idea of the market. I had no idea about the opportunities. And, you know, my teachers were like, well, you know, you're you're not good. We'll be honest, you're not good enough to be an artist. Maybe you'd be good at history of art. And I was like, great. This is definitely where, you know, where things made sense for me that, so I did that for a level, you know, at the end of, of high school, senior school. And then I did history of art at the university of Leeds. And, um, that was really fantastic. I absolutely loved that. And to see, I think that the, um, University of Leeds gave me a great education at looking outside the traditional canon of of art, which, you know, as we all know, is very heavily male and and white um, and Western. And they had a fantastic program of highlighting um, uh, women artists, um, artists of colour, artists of, you know, different geographical areas. Um, And it was just so eye opening for me. Um, and, and that was just really, really phenomenal. So I, I focused at that point on, um, on women artists, um, across, across periods. And I really, really loved that. And then from there, you know, I, I was like, well, I guess, you know, if you like history of art, then, then maybe you become an academic. And again, you know, I was told "Mm, maybe, maybe not the right route for you. Um, but it was at that point, um, that, you know, that, I think I remember, if I'm not mistaken, that um, the Sotheby's Institute, people were talking about it at the University of Leeds. And I was like, God, this seems like a phenomenal course. This was is just, 
you know exactly what I need. I love history of art. I love art, but I don't know what to do next. And the the course just blew up the market for me. And I say this every single time. It literally, you know, it, it, the whole industry exploded in front of my eyes of, you know, you could be in an auction house or a gallery or art insurance or art shipping or art, you know, work in collections or work in museums or restoration. And suddenly the whole universe came to life for me. Um, so I, that was so monumental in, in my career path and, and opening up this industry to me. I just thought it was absolutely phenomenal as, you know, I feel very lucky <laughs> to have it's, it's, on that it, path. It's strange, isn't it? But I remember, I remember in schools, um, and I've done some kind of careers advice sessions in, in, in local schools, for example, and they, their careers booklets, when they're talking about careers for people who've done history of art, it's it's either going into museums, like not-for-profit museums, or into academia, which, as you say, is incredibly difficult anyway. Mm-hmm. They say very little about, they might say a little bit about possibly auction houses, but they say very little about all of those other industries mm-hmm. which are which where you're actually in the middle of the art world, such as insurance, which most people will yawn at, but actually the art insurers that uh, the, the, the course, the programme, for example, is produced uh, are in really, really interesting jobs now where they're surrounded by interesting stories of art and the art itself. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. I know I, I and I often thought that, you know, you know, even earlier on that if you like art, then you become an artist. And mm. that is, you know, that that's just <laughs> Thank God someone put me right about that. And I could dig up my old sketches from, from senior school to prove that that would have not been a, a good route for me. Um, but, you know, it, yeah, it really, it, so by the time, if, you, you, if you're sort of told that at high school, then you might have found a different path by that time, you know. It, it's, it's If you're lucky enough to sort of persevere and keep at it, then you are told about, you know, the other opportunities that you could get into um, yeah. or how you could maybe bring the two, you know, like art law, for example, or art insurance, as we just mentioned, you know, you, if you have um, multiple talents. <laughs> uh, so how did you then get in your first job? I think your first proper job, as it were, in the art world was at High Road Auctions. Can you yeah. say something about how you got into that and what your first few weeks were like? Absolutely. So um, when I was, I should say, when I was at Sotheby's Institute, I did a number of internships at that time. I did um, a number of, I was at galleries and I did two fantastic internships with Sotheby's in their press office and their um, modern and impressionist department. Um, And I realized that the auction house was was for me. That's what well, that I hoped. Um, I just felt that it was so exciting of all the different areas we'd learned about, you know, during the master's program. That just seemed so exciting. And also I just loved the idea of, of sort of the mix of business and arts and, you know, and being creative. I thought that seemed so exciting. Um, so I, after, after the course, I actually went and traveled for about a year, which was fantastic. And when I came back, I, I decided that I really wanted some hands-on experience. I really wanted, I thought maybe going to another house would mean that, you know, a lot of admin and things like that, and which is, you know, fair, that's great, but I, I really wanted to sort of get hands-on. So, you know, I was hired by High Road Auctions um, to, you know, and I was just, we had a weekly sale of about, I want to say several hundred lots every single week. Um, and the people there wanted 
sort of to hear the the history of their piece as well. You know, it's quite often something they'd found somewhere else or grandmother had had left them or, you know, it's quite um, antiques roadshow style <laughs> of business. Say. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, it was a number of good lessons. For one, it was, you know, so client facing and to, um, you know, to share people, share stories with people. Um, and also it was very good training because, you know, everything is very different price points and not everything is excellent. You know, I think, you know, I think it's good to have experience of seeing sort of a wide range of things and, um, not everything is going to be authentic and not everything is going to be special. And I think that that was a really good way of training my eye. Um, whereas, I'm sure I'm sure it's absolutely fantastic to see masterpiece after masterpiece. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, maybe I just think this was a great way to train my eye, be able to spot things quite quickly. And again, the breadth of things I saw was just, you know, monumental. It was, you know, our sales um, uh, offered uh, fine art and silver and furniture and jewelry. So it was it was so interesting um, to see this many different things every week and to see the different players involved from, you know, private collectors to art dealers to um you know um gallerists and, and everyone in between so it was it was fabulous training and I, I should say that was my first opportunity to auctioneer as well that oh was, I was going to ask you that yeah <laughs> so and what that was that was, like could you say a little bit yeah. more about that becoming exactly, an auctioneer I could definitely you know so we had this we had a weekly sale of several hundred items and I remember my boss at the time I think saying like you know what 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 do you think you'd be like up on the rostrum? And I was like, yeah, gosh, I, I wonder, I wonder, you know, I, I'd love to find out one day. He's like, let's find out up you go. And, you know, so it was very much sink or swim um, thrown up on the rostrum like that. But at the same time, you know, we're talking low values here. We're talking low risk, um, but it, you know, and, and luckily I, I did swim um, and it was fantastic training. You know, it was um, it, it, the opportunity to, you know, sort of sell, a lot of things regularly um, really got me into the swing of it and built up my confidence and, 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 you know, showed me how to do it, um, which I, 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 I'm so grateful for because, you know, I think the risk of maybe your first sale being, you know, quite a big sale or maybe a charity auction where people are drunk or noisy, <laughs> those are really challenging, really challenging experiences. Um, you know, this was, you know, it was definitely very nerve wracking and I had, you know, art dealers who were trying to trip me up as a, as a, as a young woman going up there, trying to, you know, uh, get me on the wrong foot. <laughs> but again, that was, good experience um so yeah i'm really really grateful for that and i guess that sort of happened probably about 10 years ago now so mm. um, it was such a fabulous training ground yeah it's um, great so great to have that it's early experience you know not in the middle of the city but in in west london in chiswick the high road yeah. auctions are and uh it's, i think it's a great place to cut your teeth somewhere like that before you you go on to not necessarily better, but bigger things, if you like. So, so exactly. <laughs> and just the opportunity to keep auctioneering every yeah. week is yes. something that you know you don't just because of the auction season. You know, you don't really get that anywhere else, um, and it's it's what you need to do to get good at something. So, yeah. So, because yeah, I was going to say really that the, the the regional auctions are much more regular, and as you say, a weekly thing. Whereas, whereas once you get to some like. Bonhams or Sotheby's, Phillips, Christie's, you're you're basically leading towards the big sales maybe four or five times a year. Yeah, um, and, exactly. 
Yeah, and then um, you 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 then moved on to to Paddle Eight, which of course has had a recent, very interesting recent history. In fact, my students have just been doing a, a seminar on 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 the story of Paddle Eight, which is it's very interesting to see the way they've been discussing that, and 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 what what you know. Obviously, we ask the question: What can you learn from what did they do right and what did they do wrong in mm. terms of their strategy? Could they set something like that up today? Now that there's more online, the digital art market has uh, has, has, has boomed during the pandemic. We might talk about that more later, and then then you move. I just wanted to kind of fast forward a bit, if I may, and yeah. uh, what. How did you how did you get to New York then and Artnet? What's that story? So, you know, I'm a I'm a dual citizen. Yeah, I am I'm lucky enough to have passports for both the UK and the US. And I'd always thought that New York was, you know, would hopefully be in my future, you know, especially as the opportunity to come here, you know, I I I had to take this at some point. So this seemed like the, the right time. Um, so I was very, I was lucky enough to be able to interview for, for jobs in New York as a, as, a, as a US citizen, which was, you know, was a real blessing, something I'm incredibly grateful for. But I was interviewing from the UK for positions in the, in the US. Um, and it just seemed like the right time to make a move to New York. And after Paddle 8 and I'd had this great digital experience, Artnet was a, you know, a, a, a sort of a lovely transition into another um, a digital platform, one, albeit one that had been around for, for many decades and was, you know, really groundbreaking in that space. Um, and so I was hired by Artnet as um, a specialist in contemporary art and prints and multiples. And I was able to, to, to make that move you know, and I, I just came here with sort of two suitcases. I, I'm making it sound much more dramatic. You know? <laughs> this is, you know, I, I wasn't on a, on a boat for, for many months. I, I came off my flight, two suitcases and, and thought I'd see, see how it, how it was. And I, you know, I just thought, I, I got to the city and I thought, gosh, this space is so exciting. And, you know, Artnet as well being such a, providing so many different services of their database, their, their gallery network, their, their news site, um, as well as their auctions, felt like a really exciting hub um, to, to, to find myself in, which was, which was really, really great. Um, and, you know, so many people are so familiar with what they do. I think because of the news and, and the database in particular, um, that it, it was a really great place to be in. You know, a lot of people, you know, were, were excited by the company and it was a fabulous team. And the specialists there sort of work, you know, they are, they're, they're, re- they're a fantastic team and they work almost sort of like as dealers. They, they, they move so quickly and I, I just learned so much from them. I thought a fantastic uh, group there. Yes, really and great. then, and then, then you moved to Bonhams in New yeah, York. Yeah, exactly. And people always think that that's a bit of a strange move. You would think that for such a traditional British company that's been around for many hundreds of years, that I would have started there in London. But it's funny that I found myself as a Londoner and moved to New York to, to join Bonham's team. Um, and, you know, I think that after a couple of years of working um, in the digital space for digital auction houses, you know, I was, um, you know, looking to get back to, interestingly, back to the brick and mortar auction house. Um, and the I was looking forward to sort of working with longer lead times of auctions. Um, the online space at Paddle 8 and Artnet 
had a really, really busy sales calendar. It was, you know, many sales a month, really, that I was sourcing for, um, which was great, um, especially at the price point that we were able to sell online at that time. It's gone up astronomically now, but um, at that point, there was somewhat of a of a of a limit to what people felt comfortable spending on art then. Um, so I also wanted to sort of move to a brick and mortar for that reason, sort of longer lead times of sales um, and the opportunity just to work with sort of higher value pieces, I think, um, grow as a specialist, you know, and be part of a, a global company was really exciting to me. And at what point did you stand on the podium, climb up the podium at Bonhams in New York? That's a good question. I think um, it was pretty soon, actually. It was, um, they knew I was an auctioneer and were pretty, they, you know, they were lacking a cut of some auctioneers in New York at that time. So, um, but I had to undergo their training process, which is, you know, for, for anyone who's been in an auction house knows the, the auction training is, it's, it's really, really rigorous. Um, there is a lot, it's very involved. There's a lot you have to learn um, as well as a house style. So I was, um, I was added to the, the auction training, which is a week long course and a really intensive, you know, it's, uh, you know, nine to five um and you know auctioneering is there's a lot of stuff going on there there's a lot of entertaining and there's a lot of personality you're bringing forward but it's also people aren't always don't always realize that it's such a numbers game you are working on many different number tracks at one time um so it was a really exhausting process you know weeks of people um trying to get you on the wrong foot and trip you up and kind of, you know, going through any potential mistakes that could happen um, uh, before I was was able to take a sale for Bonhams. Um, but it was, you know, t- terrific t- training again, you know, for those who maybe aren't familiar with it, which I imagine a lot of people wouldn't, you know, you are um, the auctioneer, you're in control of the room. What you say goes, you have the final word. Um, but with that comes a lot of responsibility. You know, I think the best auctioneers don't show how much is going on. You know, you want to keep a you want to keep a very cool countenance at the top. But um, you know, there's a lot happening um underneath. So as I think, you know, many people know you can have bids from people in the room. You can have people uh, bidding from the internet, from the telephones and from absentee bids when people have left those previously. As the auctioneer, you're trying to, um, you know, orchestrate all those. Um, You're trying to keep those in line. You're trying to make sure we're all on the same increment. Um, You're trying to keep your reserve figure in mind, the estimate in mind. And you're also trying to make sure that you are on the right foot for your absentee bidders who have placed a bid. Uh, while also trying to make sure it goes to the highest possible price, um, you know, that you can make. Um, so there's a lot of a, a lot of um, coordinating going into that for every single lot. Um, and there's a lot of counting. Um, there is a lot of, um, you know, what I what I think of as sort of keeping 10 steps ahead to make sure that whatever anyone's bidding, I'll be prepared for and aware of in sort of 10 steps time. Um, so that, there's a lot, a lot that goes into it. Um, but after that training, I was able to um, get my license to auctioneer in New York because you do need a license for professional sales in New York. And I was able to, um, you know, start taking sales and they've been, you know, I'm, I'm, 
you know, taking, you know, sales for us, you know, across, I would say across New York, but um, sometimes my contemporary art sales, but also I get to work with other departments, which is fantastic from, you know, a, a book sale to a jewelry sale to American art sale um, to, uh, you know, you know, Japanese Asian art sales. It's really, really exciting because I feel like, you know, as a contemporary art specialist, that is my focus. It's my nine to five. But to be able to be part of the the department, um, you know, work with them, you know, and and bring something to their sale, you know, for a completely different department is is really fantastic. To get to be part of that for that last nanosecond of the process is is really fantastic. Um, I really really enjoy doing that. And obviously, at high high road auctions back in London, uh, which have much lower price points um yeah. probably i don't know how much the most expensive work you ever sold there was maybe you could give us an idea of what that was and how much it was and but then what was it like to sell your first work at bonhams that maybe went over a million dollars can you remember that yeah i definitely can remember it so i think that i at bonhams i i think my highest value was something like um in the range of about 20,000. And that was a high value for, for us, you know, that was for a work of art. And I, but I would say on average, it was, you know, several hundred or several thousand, you know, but my, my, uh, my sort of PB at that time, I think was at 20,000. Um, and then coming to Bonham's where I would say the average is, you know, several tens of thousands. Um, and that's across all departments, you know, because they'll have very different price points. Um, but when was it two years ago now, um, or you know about eighteen months ago, when I, I I hit the million dollar mark, when a fabulous um, sculpture by um, Lela Lan um, sold for I think a little over two million, if I'm not mistaken. I should know that off the top of my head, David, because it was a, it was a big uh, personal best day, <laughs> um, and that was really really exciting, and that was a terrific achievement for the design department whose sale it was. They had brought this wonderful consignment to, to sale of a Lalan carp, a lovely, you know, monumental sculpture of a fish. And, um, you know, uh, Le Lalan are known for their anthropomorphic um, animal sculptures. And, and this was really, really a terrific piece. So there'd been a lot of excitement about it. Um, so I was lucky enough to take that sale and there was, you know, fantastic bidding for it. Really great. So it was a real wonderful auction as well. You know, lots of great bidding, really, um, pushing the, the hammer price all the way up to that mark, which was really, really exciting. So that was great. And those kind of numbers come a bit more regularly now. I was lucky enough to be the auctioneer for the American art sale last week and, and they they um sold their top lot of Milton Avery painting for 1.1 million which again was just wonderful to get to sort of um be be part of their triumph for for a, a small piece of that um but you know it, I, I think it, it's, it's so exciting it, it's not so much the price that those pieces make that it's exciting but it's quite often they are the the top lot of an auction that you've worked incredibly hard on so it's sort of the personal aspect of that the how you know a great price is fantastic absolutely we're so thrilled for our consigners um and it's vindication of all that hard work but quite often it is the piece that 
you have been working on for, for many months, sometimes years, um, you know, and you've just worked so hard with the seller and then bringing it to, to market, promoting it, selling it, really believing it, telling the story of it, sharing it with everyone, um, writing about it, and then to be able to, you know, offer it um, and, and to see it sell for a lot, to see all that hard work, you know, come together and just, you know, to position it so it can fly for that, those few minutes on the rostrum is really yeah, exciting. I think a lot of people don't realise all the months mm. of effort that goes into hours of work that go into a successful sale. What I was going to ask you, Jacqueline, is do, do, did that sell quite easily? Or, or can you remember occasions when when the auctioneer really has to work at the room and get the, to get the bidding going? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that, again, that's something that maybe people don't realise is um, – you know, we often just see these the top prices in the newspaper and you see things going for, you know, 80 million, 82 million in the case of this past week. Um, you know, and we were just hit with sort of blockbuster pieces. So I think that maybe people who aren't as familiar with auctions just assume that everything that goes to auction is is just flying. Um, and, you, you know, I, I do definitely think that auction is the best way to sell. Of course, I'm terribly biased, but I do. And I, absolutely, it, it creates it's the perfect um, storm to create that competition between buyers. There is so much psychology involved that, um, you know, people get involved and then then want to own it and push the bidding all the way up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think it's the perfect format for that. But of course, there's sometimes when, you know, things are a bit more challenging. Um, you know, I, I think I... I probably see it more on the charity auction side, um, just because, you know, with I think with our final art auctions at Bonhams, you know, there is an intrinsic value to pieces and people know what they want. And but with the charity auction side, I've definitely had to work hard at some of those. Um, you know, there was one night when the stock market had a big dip and nobody wanted to get their wallet out. So that was that was a challenging one of having to really try and drum up the audience um, to, to to raise their paddles. And, and um, usually at yeah. charity auctions, there are no reserves, I think. I was going to ask you that there were two two of your charity auctions that that struck my attention. The Prince's Trust in London. Do you want to say tell tell the the, the, the audience of the pods more about what the Prince's Trust in London is and and how yeah. you got involved in the charity auction? And I, yeah, I should probably yeah just start by saying how I got involved in the charity auctions, and that was you know from being an auctioneer for you know a number of years now. When I first started doing it, people first friends and and you know associates came to me and asked you know whether I'd be able to um you know take a charity auction here or there um and I was so happy to do it just you know loving auctioneering and then you know being able to be part of of an organization's fundraising was really exciting but then upon moving to New York I think the the sort of the philanthropy side of things fundraising here in the US is just a different ball game. You know, in, in the UK, David, the government will provide a lot of grants and a lot of um, uh, support to nonprofits and charities. Um, whereas in the US, um, charities and, and non-for-profit organizations have to rely, rely a lot on uh, personal donations and individual donations or corporate donations, but you, you can't rely on the government here. So these these 
big sort of events and fundraisers are really instrumental and absolutely pivotal for organizations who need to raise money. And so they will quite often host a, a very large gala um, where, you know, a lovely dinner for their patrons, a you know, big night out. Um, while also fundraising, and for for many organisations, that is their annual funding. That's to you know pay staff to turn keep the lights in the building on, as well as providing for you know all the people that they're helping or whoever they're helping. So it, it's it's really it. It's extremely important here and also having a fundraiser or an auctioneer who can generate the most amount possible is so important, you know, because you're relying on someone to raise money for the next 12 months in that 20 minute fundraising space. So, you know, upon moving here, I realized that these skills were were really really needed. Um, so I, you know, I began a business um, where, you know, fundraising, auctioneering, consulting for nonprofits, and I'm hired by organizations um, to, to fundraise at their events. Um, but and that I do that regularly here in, the, in across the US, sometimes in Europe as well. Um, it was certainly affected by COVID, of course. You know, mm-hmm. rooms of many hundreds of people um, are just you know momentarily put on hold at the moment. Um, uh, but it, it's a very very busy um, uh, a seasonal work normally. Um, but going back to you know some of the big events that I've done, the Prince's Trust was is you know phenomenal organisation, um, traditionally based in the UK, but they do have branches in the in the US and throughout the world now, um, and it is um, the the charitable organisation um, set up um, by Prince Charles, um, and it is to help um, young people um, get into employment, um, support them on. Um, reach their goals, employment goals. Um, and also it has quite a strong focus on entrepreneurship and it's mm-hmm. just such a, such a fantastic, um, organization that, um, I just think is fantastic. And so that was actually, you know, that was a, a, a big one I did in, in London before, before moving there. And it was, oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. Before and moving then, here. And then the big one in New York, I guess, has to be Jay Z. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was a that was a big one. Jay Z's um, uh, his his charitable organization, and again, it's so fantastic to see these these amazing people give back. And you know, both Prince Charles and Jay Z are you know incredibly charitable, and yeah, I love and, to and, see and, that. And were were both of those celebrity figures celebrities in their very different ways? Were they both at the auctions at the events? Yeah, they were. I think, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so Prince Charles is at the event. He has to leave um, before the fundraising takes place. Oh, that's um, interesting. He, yeah, as a member of the royal family, he, you know, he couldn't be seen as, you know, you know, um, getting involved in that Conf- conflicts um, of interest. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, but um, but Jay Z and Beyonce were definitely in the room um, for their fundraising, and and yeah, and they really added to it as well. You know, mm. they. Um, I think you, you know. I think certainly people are altruistic and we want to give, but also we, I think a lot of people, you know, understandably want acknowledgement for that as well, want to be mm-hmm. celebrated. I, I think that that, mm-hmm. um, you know, is something I, I love to give people who are being generous, you know, I want to celebrate them um, and, you know, want to, you know, uh, really give them a big round of applause. And, and I think some 
they were really instrumental in doing that. And, you know, they really gave everything to raise so, so much money, many, many, many millions of dollars um, for that mm. fundraiser. And I, I guess so, that kind of links back into your work at the auction house, because a lot of those players are going to be also be, one, but you know, art collectors, big art collectors as well. I just wonder whether you could say a few words about the experience of Bonhams in New York at the start of the pandemic in 2020. How did you respond to that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think at the beginning we were much like everyone else, you know, we, we were waiting to see what would happen. We were all, you know, sent home. Um, but we, we pushed back our for, And for those who don't know, um, you know, the, Big contemporary art auctions tend to be in May and November, in the spring and in the fall. Um, and when all this happened in New York was sort of, um, you know, March, April, we pushed back our main contemporary sale by just a little bit, though, just a little bit, because initially when everything went on to such a strict lockdown here, we physically couldn't get the artworks here. You know, they were in various places around the world. They were with collectors or in storage and, you know, the shipping couldn't happen. Um, but once we realized that we could pivot online and do things quite seamlessly, we started working towards our next sale well, and we held our contemporary sale in July. And it was a great success. We were able to, most importantly, get the artworks you know, to a Bonhams location. And the difference was that we couldn't have people in the room bidding with us. Um, and we so. But so what we found that in the run up to it, and we actually had normally, you know, our, our sale is, is based in New York. All the pieces are, are there able to be viewed in New York. And we actually um, sort of did a, a, a split location in Los Angeles and New York just because the ability to get things to certain places and the where people were based. We thought we would do two different geographic geographic locations of, of half the sale in each. It worked out like that. Um, and we found that with contemporary clients, they're quite digitally savvy anyway. The move to online wasn't that worrisome for them as it might have been for other departments or, or other um, areas of the art world, perhaps. You know, our clients were already, you know, pretty used to, to being online. Um, we found that I would say that the sort of specifics that people wanted for us, we, we definitely had to be very a lot more personal in our approach, approach, funnily enough, given that we were going online. But for example, we couldn't we couldn't rely on people coming in to see things themselves, you know, as we had previously. So we had to really we were bending over backwards to make sure that people had access to everything as, as if it were normal. So, you know, that lots of video calls, lots of, um, you know, I would say video events, um, you know, um, uh, uh, FaceTimes and things like that, uh, things like that, providing a really personal experience and, and one to make sure that people felt really comfortable with the artwork, even if they couldn't be there. Um, but we did find that the sort of just sort of the anecdotal stories we were hearing of people being at home had a bit more time on their hands and, you know, had a bit more time to either, you know, go online and wanted to look through the auctions, um, but also that they were at home and they were thinking, 
God, I absolutely hate that painting on the wall, or I've been meaning to sell that painting for years, or, you know, I'm going to be here. This is my home office now. Let's make sure I'm surrounded by beautiful things. That was really, I think, pretty instrumental in people's buying habits um, over the past 18 months. And at that part of the pandemic, you know, last you know, in early 2020, everything else had shut down. The art fairs shut down, galleries you couldn't go into. You know, these online viewing rooms, you know, we went to them, they mixed bag. I, I must say I felt, you know, I was pretty tired of them after a certain period. Um, and so the auction houses who were providing, you know, um, interesting content and, um you know, you know, providing sort of fresh material was the place to go to if if you wanted to buy art or if you wanted to sell art. So we sort of became, you know, the 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 only one in the game, really. Um, so it meant that you know that our registrations and um, attention on our our auctions, you know, really really increased, which was which was terrific to see. And that following season, that fall, that autumn. We had, I think, our most successful sale um, in, in Bonham's New York contemporary history. And then that was followed this most recent spring. Um, we had um the we were so beyond thrilled to offer offer them this most wonderful collection of works by Yayo Kusama from a, a private single collection. Um, so it was it was a, a really, you know, for auctions and for Bonhams, we had a, a very, very strong 18 months, two years. And I think you can, interestingly, kind of pin it down to sort of people's habits at that time, which is was really fascinating. Yeah. And do you, um, presumably, did, did the number of um, bidders really rise because of the online bidders were jumping on that platform for the first time, perhaps? Yes, most definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we had the amount of registrations and bidders, yeah, really flew. And I think that, you know, there wasn't, we did see as well that, um, you know, some people, certainly at the beginning of the pandemic, maybe didn't, weren't confident selling. Um, they soon changed their minds. But at the beginning, people were just wanting to pace themselves and see what happened. So there was there was a real demand um, for works to buy. And there was uh, there was less out there because people just wanted to see how it went. So certainly at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a real shortage of pieces. So those that that came to auction, those consigners that were brave and, you know, confident, quite rightly so, saw so much demand for their works that really, you you know, pushed up those hammer prices in the competition, which was great. And we had, we'd done a number of, a couple of online sales in our department previously, um, but we definitely increased um, the amount of just online only offerings as well um, over the past 18 months, which was, you you know, they they tended to be sort of lower price points, um, you know, just great material. um, And that provided a, a, a great way of selling and buying for people as well. Uh, that's that's so so out of something kind of very negative and uh, a worrying come, come came a lot of sort of new shoots. Um, I was just just yeah. kind of maybe maybe finish by asking you uh, what advice would you give to any uh, younger people perhaps who 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 are thinking of going into the art world as a career and what advice would you give them if they might be thinking of becoming an auctioneer? <laughs> oh, I'd say definitely do it. And you know we need more auctioneers. We need more female auctioneers as well. Um, and I think that the advice I would give is to, I've got 
I've got a couple of bits of advice, a bit of amalgamation. <laughs> I would definitely say go into the art world. I would say that um, I think that, you know, we should be talking as peers, as students, as friends, as colleagues. Uh, you know, I think it really benefits us all to talk more, um, to talk about our experiences working for different places, uh, talk about salaries, talk about career paths. I think that sort of bringing that transparency, um, particularly when you're young and you're all on the same footing, is really, really important, um, particularly in an art market that, you know, is often you said to be, you know, again, quite right. So, you know, can be quite elitist, can be quite opaque. There can be challenges. Um, so I think that talking to your friends, particularly, you know, for those students who might be listening to this, you know, you're not only your, your friends will become your peers. They will remain with you for the next many decades. I, I can tell you that, you know, so talking to them about what we're earning, what bosses are like, you know, what people's hours are like, is this normal? Is this okay? You know, it is really, really important. Um, so I would really encourage people to do that. Um, and I think to also, um, I think to negotiate is another one. Um, I, I read that from, from someone very smart recently as well, particularly again, when you're just starting out in the art world, you think, you think you're just so lucky to, to have a job, particularly at this time in a global pandemic where, you know, jobs are, um, you know, the dream jobs hard to find. And, you know, we're all worried about keeping jobs or, or getting them. Um, so I think we're told that to have any job is fantastic. And certainly, certainly there is, it is, there's an aspect of that, but at the same time, you know, you can feel really strong about your position, about you're bringing so much worth to a company um, and to remember to negotiate and, and to kind of keep that in mind. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think those are my two bits of advice, <laughs> David. I think that's, I, I think, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's great advice. And uh, Jacqueline, I'd like to thank you very much for, being part of uh, this podcast and uh, next time I'm in New York or next time in, you're in London, uh, let's meet for a coffee. <laughs>